Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Urban, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Normally, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. But in this episode, Pete and I take a step back and we talk with each other. We'll converse first about each other, about what our backgrounds are and our interests and some of the projects we have going on. And then we'll move into looking back on the first 10 episodes of Challenging Climate with an eye toward the future. Yeah, I guess it's, it's my turn to give you a little bit of an interview. Who is Jesse Reynolds? <laughs> and how did he become who he is today? Well, my career trajectory has many curves, like quite a few of those who end up involved at the intersection of policy and science. When I was first starting university studies, my interests were in the natural sciences. I was strong in quantitative fields, chemistry in particular. And as I became interested in environmental issues, that evolved into environmental science. But as I went to get my master's, my interest shifted to the policy side. So I got a master's at UC Berkeley in environmental policy. And that's where my fascination with the role of technology on questions of environmental sustainability arose. After that, I spent about a decade working on issues of the governance of human genetic and reproductive technologies. Around 2010, when I chose to return to academia to get my PhD, I looked around and thought, well, what's bubbling up of interest at the intersection there of science, technology, and policy? And this was right when the Royal Society report on geoengineering the climate, meaning carbon dioxide removal and SRM, sunlight reflection method or solar radiation modification, right when that was published. So I, I thought that'd make an interesting topic. So that's when I moved to the Netherlands, returned to the university world, and got my PhD on that topic, the governance of carbon dioxide removal and SRM. So since I remained an academic for the next few years, and now I've moved on beyond academia. I think I remember speaking to you before that you, you worked with like environmental NGOs or an activist for a while and then shifted to a more academic perspective. Yeah, I'm not sure if activist is quite the right word. I've certainly had an interest in the role of activist organizations and how they can and should influence policy. Most of the years between my master's degree and my PhD were at a small NGO in the US that was focused on whether there should be a future of human genetic modification and other emerging reproductive genetic technologies. And if so, how can those be responsibly regulated? And in a way, one might see that as a detour from environmental issues. But certainly looking back on it, I can see the context of these overarching questions of expanding human leverage over the natural world through emerging technologies, some of which should be regulated and governed, but questions remain uh, how and for what ends. Yeah. I guess we all have our sort of career trajectory, but I guess, do you have some like changes in your views and perspectives or like the, the ideas that motivated your, your work over that time? Yeah, I, I think there were two primary shifts that I can look back on. One is the shift from the quantitative natural sciences to the social sciences. 
at the time, it seemed clear to me that the scientific evidence of environmental problems and available responses, if not solutions to them, were available. And that the bottleneck lie at policy and politics. And because of that, I felt that my efforts could be and should be better spent at the latter. The other shift was more gradual. Uh, like many people, my politics were a little bit further from the center when I was younger. It's understandable as you learn about the world and the serious problems that it has to become frustrated, if not a bit angry, at the existing institutions as failing to deliver what could and should be delivered. And as is common, as one goes through life and has experience, I began to see some of the more difficult trade-offs in policy and in politics. And that brought me uh, brought my politics a bit closer to the center. I presume you mean you went from further left to the center rather than from the far right. <laughs> Just <laughs> to check. <laughs> Just to be clear, yes, 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 yes. I was a young member of the progressive wing of the U.S. Democrat Party. And so I was a strong advocate of Jerry Brown in 1992. Uh, and I think that's the sense of my politics through the early 2000s or so. Well, I guess um, from your research, probably the biggest output you, you put out there was your book on um, the governance of solar engineering. Is it just solar engineering? Correct. So how would you describe your research focus? At the most general level, uh, it's how policies and institutions and norms can be crafted so that technologies, emerging powerful technologies in particular, can deliver the greatest net benefits with particular eye towards those people who are currently and historically disadvantaged at the uh, lower ends of the world's socioeconomic distribution. And within that, I did turn my attention in my PhD research and my postdoc research thereafter to the governance of carbon dioxide removal at large scale, and especially toward SRM, solar geoengineering, as my book calls it. And that, for the new listener, uh, is a set of proposals to increase the reflectivity of the planet in order to counteract climate change. And it raises serious governance issues and sociopolitical challenges. So in the book, I tried to cast a pretty wide net on those issues and situated in, in more than one disciplinary context, I guess you could say. First and foremost is, is international law, which is the department in which I got my PhD, but also drawing from international relations, so political science, thinking about how countries actually interact, not just the rules that they make explicitly in terms of how they relate to each other, as well as economics. And not economics in the sense of the study of money, but in terms of the study of decision-making that people and institutional actors do, especially in the aggregate, when one considers their objectives, their capabilities, and the incentives they face. So that, that, that points towards a type of uh, what a political scientist would call a rational actor model of, of international relations. What do countries want as best as we can figure? How are they able to pursue those objectives? And how can institutions and rules be crafted so that their interests better align? 
with each other. Yeah, I guess some of these things you might imagine, like the international law, some of us might imagine that it's sort of quite fixed. There are the rules, that's what they are. And it might just be a matter of interpreting the, those rules to sort of see how we should act. I guess that, that's challenging when you've got a very novel idea like solar engineering. Absolutely. The fundamental, a fundamental problem with solar geoengineering is the control problem, I guess you could say. At the most general level, international law is fundamentally different than the law that people experience each day, right? So you and I, we, we might hop in a car and there's a speed limit or we, we have to pay taxes and that's legally enforced. And by legally enforced, at the end of the day, there's a not only a centralized law maker, but there's a centralized enforcer of laws. There's a threat lingering in the shadows of confiscation of property, and uh, uh, you can be deprived of your liberty, and in some situations, even your life. And the international order is fundamentally different. There is no centralized lawmaker or law enforcer. From a legal perspective, all countries are equally sovereign, so they're peers. So an analogy that I sometimes used when teaching class is you have a, I live on a courtyard. So there's about 30 houses or so that, that face each other. And we don't have a centralized lawmaker, but we can take actions that are sometimes explicit to cooperate and sometimes a little bit implicit the way that everybody has always acted. And so that's the way we should act. And there's no centralized enforcer, but we are interested in maintaining a good reputation because we know we're in it for the long term. And that, that's a decent starting point for thinking about the international order, that countries can cooperate. And sometimes this is very explicit in terms of a treaty with words. Sometimes it's a norm that has been followed for so long. It's just widely recognized as binding in as much as anything is binding. But at the end of the day, there is no centralized enforcer that can deliver punishments for violations of international law, only for the most part, mediate disputes. Now, as we move into solar geoengineering, the core challenge there is control. It's this highly leveraged technology that could be undertaken, it appears, within feasible technological reach at reasonable cost, few billion US dollars to do it poorly, sloppily, tens of US billions of dollars to do it well. But there might not be international consensus. How do we control that country that may want to move ahead too far and too fast relative to the rest of the world when there's no centralized enforcement mechanism? And that's, that's a real struggle. So it doesn't necessarily point to what is often tempting, which is a global a centralized decision maker that says, we are the single decision-making body. And if you use solar geoengineering outside of our guidelines, then, then you're in violation because those countries that are most interested in pushing ahead won't sign up for that agreement. So how do you find the right balance is the central question, I think, to much of my work. Yeah, I guess you could take maybe an idealistic approach to it? Like what would be the right way to do it? How, what would be the appropriate way? And would it be wrong to do it any other way? And then there might be more of a pragmatic view that, you know, how could it happen and what's likely? I mean, how, how do you approach it in that sense? 
Certainly relative to other researchers of international environmental law, I'm, a, I'm rather pragmatic. I'm, I'm interested in the world as it is uh, and how problems in this world that we have, this deeply imperfect world, how problems can be reduced and managed in ways that improve human well-being and that are sustainable. So what concerns me about idealism is that it can result in a suboptimal outcome, that it can actually backfire by aiming too high or too far. So I recommend caution along that axis. Well, now your latest project isn't a research project. You are now part of the Global Overshoot Commission. So what is, what is the Global Overshoot Commission and uh, what's your role in it? So the short term that we're using is the Climate Overshoot Commission, the longer name being the Global Commission on Governing Risks from Climate Overshoot. And this is a global collection of eminent and independent leaders who will examine additional options to reduce the risks of climate change as global warming approaches the lower end, at least, of the warming goals set out in the Paris Agreement. And that's 1.5 degrees C. The world is right now at 1.1 and increasing as the years go by. And we have assembled a collection of 16 figures, of, of which I'm quite proud, quite excited to be part of this project. This includes a handful of former presidents and prime ministers, uh, national ministers who are both uh, current and former leaders of intergovernmental organizations, leaders of environmental organizations, and other experts in global governance and sustainability. And the objective here is to look at these additional approaches to reducing climate change risks. And these additional approaches are in addition to cutting emissions, which we emphasize must remain the top priority among responses to climate change. But given the severity of risks, we can't take anything off the table. So we're looking at first the degree to which adapting to a changed climate can be accelerated and expanded. How far and how fast can this process go in the time we have remaining? The removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, through various technological and terrestrial and marine techniques. And as we were discussing earlier in the context of my academic research, the potential of reflecting a small percentage of incoming sunlight to cool the earth temporarily during this period of overshoot. An overshoot is a term that has risen in the use of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, at least in a, uh, their most recent assessment report and the special reports before that. I'm not sure if it was in use in the fifth assessment report. And the idea there is overshoot is a scenario of the future in which a goal, typically a temperature goal, but I think it can also be used in a context of greenhouse gas concentration. But a goal is exceeded, and then that condition is brought back down to be below the goal. And if you look at these optimistic scenarios of climate change, even the optimistic ones usually have at least some overshoot of the 1.5 degree goal, 
And if one were to extrapolate from current trends and look at current policy commitments, there's overshoot of the higher Paris Agreement goal of two degrees warming, overshooting those goals by 0.3 or 0.5 or more troubling even one or even 1.5 degree. And then as we move into the later part of the 21st century, some combination of techniques, in particular uh, emissions cuts, reducing emissions close to zero, and carbon dioxide removal, which can result in net negative emissions where humanity is pulling more greenhouse gases out of the air than we're putting in, bringing warming back down below whatever goal is, is at hand. And that process is overshoot. So the questions are, how can we limit the intensity or the magnitude of that overshoot? How can we minimize the number of years or decades in which we're overshooting? How can we reduce the impacts on people and vulnerable ecosystems during overshoot? And so the commission will meet about a half a dozen times over the next year and a quarter and produce a recommended strategy of an integrated policy or set of policy recommendations for national uh, and especially international institutions that bring together all these responses to climate change. We intend to release the recommendation late next summer, so that it's well before the 2023 UN Climate Summit with the associated global stock take. I guess some people might believe that with climate change, we just got to eliminate CO2 emissions and we can stop the problem and avoid the risks. But I think, I guess we're already seeing the impacts of climate change around us and they're here now and they're causing serious trouble. An overshoot in a way is a recognition that there will be, I think the term is loss and damage. The world is going to suffer quite a lot, even if we pick up our pace and, and, and cut emissions quickly. So yeah, I think that's a, it's an important thing to focus on. So I guess the, the assumption is we need to cut emissions as fast as possible. But those are, those are not within scope for this. I guess we're sort of looking longer, looking farther out. Why is mitigation not also within scope for this? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's really central to thinking about how this commission uh, will proceed. There's nearly universal consensus that greenhouse gas emissions need to be cut. There's debates about uh, who bears the costs, who should do it and how fast, et cetera. There's no shortage of recommendations about how to rapidly decarbonize. And we identified the value added, the marginal value, to use the term of, uh, of an economist, with those other three approaches to reducing climate risk. So it's a way of saying, look, even though this is the top priority, cutting emissions, we all agree on it. So let's set it off to the side and assume we're going to be doing this as best as we can focus on these other three approaches. Where are the opportunities? Where are the risks? What policies should be made? And to be clear, what direction this goes and what the conclusions are, are in the hands of the commissioners themselves. They're the decision makers. My role in this, to be explicit, I'm executive secretary. So the commission is supported by a secretariat. So a staff to make sure that it has the meetings and has the information and gets its job done, build a website and, and all that routine stuff. But uh, they're the ones making the decision. And they may say, look, this option is, it should, should be taken off the table. It's, it's too risky. That, that's up to them. 
And so you've got these 16 very eminent figures. I mean, you've got one of Canada's former prime ministers. They must be the highest level discussions on these on these ideas. I mean, I guess carbon dioxide removal and adaptation have been discussed elsewhere before, but this issue of overshoot and um, extending the discussion to also include solid engineering is, is novel. You mentioned they're going to have these meetings. Will there be scientific advisors? Will they bring in experts? Like, how are they going to gather the information to come to some de- their decisions? So there will, in fact, be a small number of high-level science advisors for the commissioners. We're aiming to have about three or four. We're in the process of, of inviting them right now at, at the present moment. I have We have one confirmed, and immediately after we record this conversation, I'll have a conversation with another. So hopefully with, by the end of the day, we might have two. And these will be scientists with deep expertise in atmosphere and earth systems as a whole. These are not CDR scientists. These are not adaptation scientists. These are not sunlight reflection scientists. There'll be a secretariat, as mentioned, that more provides the support for the the details and the logistics, if you will. We also uh, intend to engage in a stakeholder engagement process once the commission gets off the ground and gets rolling to be sure that a more diverse range of voices from around the world are heard, thinking about youth movements and groups of younger citizens of the world who are rightfully relatively concerned about climate change and how we might be able to respond to it, because they're the ones that will be handed the situation for better or for worse as the years go on. And I got to be sure and work this in for the listeners who are curious about the uh, composition of the commission and and any other information, our website's overshootcommission.org. And we'll put a link in the show notes, won't we, Pete? Yes, we will. Yeah. So it sounds, I mean, if, if they're producing a report in a little over a year, it sounds like you're going to be uh, pretty busy. <laughs> that's, been, uh, that's been the case thus far with this project. So I suspect so. Well, I, I think it's really interesting. I'd be really keen to see how it develops and what comes out of it. Yeah, I'm excited about this as well. So maybe uh, uh, the time has come to learn a little bit about Pete Irvin. Are, are you ready to be put on the hot seat? Yes. So uh, how did you get to where you're at? You are an assistant professor. It would be the international term, but I think you're a lecturer is the UK term at University College London. How did you land there? I I did a physics undergraduate degree and, um, you know, I was very, I wanted to know how the world worked. And at school, the only subjects that seemed to actually give sensible answers were maths and physics. So that, I kind of got drawn into that. But at the same time, I think another strand, you know, I'm a sci-fi fan, right? So whenever I was doing projects or literature review, I was always doing things like invisibility cloaks and uh, slightly, slightly fantastical stuff. What attracted me to physics was that it offered explanations, but it also, I mean, very clearly offered tremendous, frightening you know, technologies and developments in the world. I mean, obviously the, the nuclear bomb is the most striking case of People found some unusual rocks that made film exposed. And then a few years later, they blow entire cities up. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable and frightening. So going through the physics degree, I, I really enjoyed learning all this stuff. And, but after a certain time, it got a little too esoteric. My master's thesis was titled Atomic Traps on Radio Field Dressed Magnetic Nanowires. 
which is I don't I can't even remember really what it was about. <laughs> it's just it's very uh, fairly obscure stuff, and um, I kind of wanted to work somewhere that would make a difference to problems that matter to people. You know, I looked for some industry things, but there, a lot of it seemed to be you know making missiles, finding oil, working out how to mess with the financial markets. So I didn't want to do any of those things. And so I was looking around for PhD topics, and then I just came across solar geoengineering. And it seemed to sort of tick some of my boxes. You know, it's a radical idea, but it draws on, I think, one of the strengths of physics, which is you go to the fundamentals of a problem. The Earth's warming up because it's absorbing more energy each year than before. And so as a result, the temperature rises. That's being driven by the fact we've got added greenhouse gases, which trap outgoing heat but it's a balance of the incoming sunlight and this outgoing heat. So you could change the incoming sunlight and you could offset the warming. And, and that attracted me. I think another strand as I was going through my physics degree is I was getting quite fed up with how narrow it was. UK degrees are very, very, very focused. You do I did maths, further maths and physics, A-level, and then only physics courses at university. So it's very sort of railroad type education. And I just kind of got more interested in philosophy and other issues that I was just kind of reading in my spare time. And so I thought I saw solar geoengineering and immediately it's not just a technical problem. It's very clearly an ethical, moral, political issue, but one that I think everybody can understand, at least intuitively and discuss and get involved with. So it kind of ticked on my boxes. It was sort of ethically challenging, moral and interesting. It was physical and understandable. Anyone can talk about it. So, so that's kind of what drew me to it. I started out climate modeling, the response to solar geoengineering. But again, very quickly, you know, I have all these results of temperature changes and rainfall changes, and um, that's all well and good, but what does it mean? So I, I kind of started to get drawn out from the pure physical science aspects of the subject into the what does it mean? So yeah, even during my PhD, I started to sort of look a little bit into what it might mean for agriculture or what regions might be worse off that kind of question, which is more subjective or is or goes farther than just a pure physical understanding. Then I did a postdoc in Germany, which was very interdisciplinary and a learning experience, <laughs> learning the languages of other disciplines, how ideas merge or clash. Yeah, it was uh, lots of failures and some successes and lots of learning. And then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I went to Harvard for another uh, postdoc, coming back to more of the technical analysis. But yeah, I think, I think throughout my work, I think the thing that's motivated me is we need to understand the science of this idea, but we also need to find out what that means for the broader issue. Like, we've got these changes in rainfall. What does that mean? Will countries agree on this? How could it be deployed? I just, I'm just interested in how it all connects together, this sort of the big picture of it. Your trajectory during your undergraduate and master's years reminds me of my own, becoming a bit disaffected with pure academic research in the natural science and averse to the applied areas that were immediately available, as you, as you spoke of, of uh, building missiles and, and, and identifying oil. It's, it's not that different with a chemistry degree. So I do, uh, I think I can see where, where you were coming from. Before we dive deeper into your recent research on solar geoengineering, allow me to ask you, what was the most influential science fiction work that you read? Oh, that's a good question. 
I'm not sure. I mean, I guess there's a lot of a lot of ones. I, I really love the Uplift Wars. It was very sort of fantastical space opera stuff. So these sort of high adventure type things. But I also love the kind of the philosophical or um, idea based ones. I mean, Isaac Asimov, lots of fun. Not a, not a great writer, but a great thinker. <laughs> so yeah, I read, I read quite a lot. But yeah, I think it's I think it's the writing about the possible, like what might be and what could be and what if it were different i think that's the the sort of the theme which i think comes across in a lot of sci-fi so i'm not sure if there's any one particular particular one that caught me but just that um yeah the possible is sort of what intrigued me did you read dune i did read dune lots of fun yeah i actually just re- reread that quite recently i bring that up because i was just uh earlier today listening to an interview with her mutual acquaintance uh, oliver morton he was speaking to the C2G podcast, and uh, he brought up the relevance of Dune, obviously, to questions of geoengineering, but to climate science more broadly. Let's move back to your research. I think we've, we've described what, uh, what you call solar geoengineering. We use these terms roughly interchangeably, SRM. Uh, we'll probably bounce between them here during this conversation. I often get asked a question that I want to ask you because it's a natural science question. I was asked this by a colleague just yesterday, in fact. What would be the effects of solar geoengineering? How can you most briefly describe it? What would it do? Who would be harmed? What are the risks? What are the benefits? Yeah, I guess the way I like to think about it is, or how we think about it in climate science, is that there are what are called forcings or forcers that have an effect on climate that drive it to somewhere different. Now, CO2, greenhouse gases adding up in the atmosphere, that's one forcing and they trap heat and that then leads to a warming of the planet. Stratospheric aerosol geoengineering would reflect light in this upper atmosphere, but it would also absorb some radiation and warm it up there. And the net effect would be a cooling as well as some other changes. And and it's worth distinguishing that some of the changes in the climate are fast effects that come directly with the forcing. So CO2 warms the atmospheric column. So we can do this in the climate models. We just bang, turn the CO2 up by a factor of four. And just in the first day, there's a fast effect. We could do the same thing for stratospheric aerosol engineering. Bang, there's a fast effect. Now, different forcings have very different fast effects, but they all have pretty similar slow effects. As the planet warms, there's a whole bunch of climate changes that come with the warming. So when I think about what would stratospheric aerosol geoengineering or solar geoengineering do, it wouldn't undo the fast effects of CO2 on the climate, and it wouldn't undo the direct effects that CO2 has, say, acidifying the ocean and uh, changing the way plants work, because they breathe in CO2 and breathe out water, and it changes that. But it would reduce that temperature change, as well as bringing some of its own effects. So I think there's unaddressed effects of CO2. There is the avoided warming, which is a whole set of things I can discuss. And then there's the fast effects of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, as well as its side effects. So it um, it warms the stratosphere, as I mentioned. It doesn't necessarily matter too much to us, but it makes the sky a bit hazier. It scatters light to space, but also it scatters it downwards. I mean, we've all seen hazy days. In addition, it affects ozone, but not a great deal. And the idea with most of our simulations is that we're sort of mimicking or copying what volcanoes do, which is add sulfuric acid or um, sulfur dioxide 
to the stratosphere. Now that sulfuric acid is acidic and it causes acid rain. Uh, it also causes a lot of pollution problems at low levels. So you add SO2 to the stratosphere, you're going to cool the climate, but you're going to add to the acid rain problem. But we already have a very large acid rain problem because of pollution, and we'd add a relatively small amount. So there's a whole set of side effects, and there's the unaddressed effects of CO2. But many of the things that we worry about for climate change are driven by temperature. I mean, obviously, extreme heat and changing temperatures in general, that's driven by warming. The reduction in extreme cold, that's driven by warming. But there's other things too. Um, sea level rise, the melting of ice on land and the warming of the oceans, primarily driven by temperature. So if you were to reduce temperature, you're going to reduce the drivers of sea level rise. And I think more surprisingly, extreme precipitation. So as the planet warms, air carries more moisture. So all else equal, when you have rain, moisture coming together in a storm and dropping as much as it can, for every degree Celsius of warming, it increases by 7% the amount of water that carries. So two Celsius of warming means there's 15% or 14% more rainfall coming out when rain is at its most intense. And that's a pretty robust thing seen across the world. So reducing temperatures will reduce that change. There's another related thing that air can carry more moisture. So when you've got a dry period or a dry region, warmer air is going to suck up more moisture in those places and in those times and dump it in wetter places and wetter times. So you generally have an intensification of the patterns of wet and dry, both in space and time. It's more complicated than that, but temperature drives a big part of that. Just to be clear, what you're talking about there about the intensification, that's climate change. That's greenhouse gases, right? Yes. And now you're going to move back over to... Sorry, yeah. I, I was describing there's a whole set of effects that come with the temperature change. And as stratospheric aerosol geoengineering would reduce that temperature change, it'll reduce all of those things. And we can be pretty sure. Of. Now, it'll cause some other changes. And as I mentioned, CO2 has some effects that would persist. The warming of the atmosphere uh, means that you have a suppression of convection. Convection carries warm, moist air from the surface and then dumps it higher up in the atmosphere. If that's already warmed, there's less demand for that transport of moisture from the surface to the upper atmosphere, which reduces rainfall and that changes circulation. So there's some changes driven by the fast effects of CO2 that we just can't address and that would remain. And then there are some other effects that come from the stratospheric aerosol geoengineering itself. It warms the stratosphere. Um, there's a, a winter warming effect we see after volcanoes. And there's some other effects we see too. But yeah, I think there's a whole set of things that we know it's going to reduce some of the effects of climate change, or many of the effects of climate change. That's sort of the theory of it. And then we have our climate model results, and we can kind of analyze them in, in more detail to get sort of more of a regional picture. Now, let's suppose I'm a, uh, a political decision maker. I say, well, Dr. Irvin, that's all well and good, but I'm responsible for the well-being of my nation. Now, I've heard that that uh, the solar geoengineering would necessarily bring winners and losers. Is that true? And most importantly, would my country be a winner or a loser? That is a great question. I think it's worth taking a step back. I think, you know, while I, I kind of in my intro, I was sort of saying I was, I was quite attracted to the idea of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. It's not because I necessarily thought it would work. It's that I thought there was, a, there was some possibility that there might be something here. 
But I think something that motivated a lot of my early research was trying to find where are the big problems with this idea? Like, where does it go wrong? And, you know, I mentioned a whole set of things that it would definitely reduce extreme heat, the general change in temperature. These are things that are critically important for human health and for driving ecosystem change. Just temperature change alone is, is a huge part of the impact of climate change. Sea level rise too would be reduced. Extreme rainfall would be reduced. But regional changes in hydrology, that's the place where we want to look if we want to look for problems. And, um, you know, there's, there's some evidence that some places are seeing, I mean, one of the trends we see is overall a weakening of global rainfall, weakening of the global hydrological cycle. That means less precipitation, but it also means less evaporation. So how that balances out in different regions will vary. So, yeah, I think this is where we want to look for winners and losers, or at least that's a way in which some countries may lose out. And climate model projections aren't perfect. And also, there's uncertainties in how we would do this and how we would deploy it. So exactly what pattern of change we can expect is, is difficult to know. I mean, I think one of the things on the hydrological change, on rainfall changes and water availability changes, I mean, some of the simulations I've done, analysis I've done, shows that you know under climate change, some places get a lot wetter and some places get a lot drier. If we were to use stratospheric aerosol geoengineering to offset half the warming we expect to go warming, we would see both the places we see the largest increase in rainfall, see those reduced, and the places we see the largest decrease in rainfall would see those reduced. Like overall, there's less change in regional hydrology. But if you go more than halving warming, you don't really get any better than that. It's you, you've reduced the overall change, but not eliminated it. And in some places, you're going to see more change. So overall, you see less hydrological change, but there will be places that will see more, and there will be places that may get drier. So yeah, exactly where, exactly how is difficult to say at this time. But I mean, you can imagine a scenario. And let's, I mean, I'm just going to pick a place that seems like a candidate is the Mediterranean, so Spain. In some simulations, it looks like it's going to get a bit drier. So climate change is going to make it dry, make it reduce rainfall. And it might be that stratospheric aerosol reduces rainfall further. The question is, that's not necessarily mean that Spain is worse off. It means that Spain is worse off perhaps in that respect. The question would then be, what's the total effects of a climate change world versus a stratospheric aerosol geoengineering world? So you might have less rainfall, but how has evaporation changed? You might have maybe less water availability overall, but how has variability changed? Is it more consistent or not? And we know temperature will be reduced. We know sea level rise will be reduced and extreme precipitation is likely to be reduced. So the judgment of whether a region is better or worse off is a little difficult. You need to go to the next level. You need to start running some agricultural models. You need to start thinking about ecosystem impacts. And then to some extent, it's going to be a subjective judgment. I don't know exactly what the challenges are in Spain. I know heat will be a challenge. Sea levels will be a challenge. But is water availability the biggest challenge? And if that made worse, will that dominate the other changes? It's hard to say. I think we're at an early stage. but I. I think that it's clear from the model simulations we have so far that stratospheric aerosol geoengineering would reduce most of the effects of climate change in most places, but some places will see greater change in some variables, and then they may or may not be worse off as a result. So I think everyone presumes, and perhaps rightly presumes, that there will be losers. But there's at least a possibility that even those who lose out 
in some respects, may still judge themselves better off because of the other changes. Uh, this is kind of early stuff. I've you know written some comments and done some analysis, but I think I think I think in future research, I think people need to flip it around and say, you know, can we guess or identify which regions would be made worse off and, and make a case for it? Because I think there's been this presumption that there must be losers, but I, I think we should at least question it. And um, I think I'd like to see someone demonstrate that a region would be worse off. In the conversations around solar geoengineering, uh, I, I've heard a lot about its effects on not just the hydrologic cycle and rainfall, but specifically on the tropical or more accurately, I think, subtropical monsoons. We hear a lot about uh, the South Asian monsoon, the West African monsoon, et cetera. Could you elaborate a little, little bit about that? And what do we know and, and how can we communicate that? One of the, I think, most widely reported or discussed result of stratospheric aerosol engineering is that it would weaken monsoon rainfall. And that is true, but somewhat misleading. Most climate models project an intensification, an increase in monsoon rainfall as the planet warms. And what we typically see in most simulations of stratospheric aerosol engineering, the setup is, let's try and keep temperatures constant while where they would have risen by two or three Celsius, let's stop that rise. And rather than preventing the increase in rainfall in the monsoon regions, what we generally see is that the monsoon regions see a net reduction in rainfall. So rather than say a 5% increase in rainfall, they see a 5% decrease in rainfall. But it's dose dependent. What that means is if we only did half as much cooling, so rather than halting temperature rise, we just reduced it, we would go from a 5% increase to no change if we were to just half warming. Rather than a change of 10%, we half that, we have plus 5%, minus 5%. Right. So, you know, I often try to communicate what SRM would do, and it's really hard. Because not only is it dose dependent, not only is it dependent upon the particulars of the regime, but you're really trying to compare three points, right? It's not A versus B. It's A versus B versus C versus A, right? So you have a, some sort of a pre-industrial world, or sometimes it's 1980, or it's the year 2000, or it's now. And then you have some world of greater greenhouse gas concentrations of some magnitude in the associated warming. And then you have a possible world with that elevated greenhouse gas concentration plus some amount of SRM, and then you can model the effects. And each of those has variables hidden in them, especially the SRM, what latitude, what time of year, what intensity. So to which world does one compare the SRM to? And it's difficult because yes, SRM is only being considered as a response to a possible future of greater and greater greenhouse gas concentrations. But at the same time, this is the world we're used to is 2020. And in our rear view mirror is a pre-industrial world that we're familiar with. So to some degree, it's an appropriate but difficult communication. Let's look at our podcast here in the last few minutes that we have, shall we? Let's. All right. So Pete, I had been thinking about starting a podcast myself last fall. And then you contacted me in September or so. I thought, ah, there we go. Let's do it. So here we are. I think we're at episode 11. Yeah. And we've had 10 guests. 
why don't we uh why don't I turn the table over to you? Yeah, sure. What have you drawn from our from our guests? What has been one of the bigger surprises, let's say, as we've interviewed our, our last 10 guests? I think we both had a similar vision for what we wanted out of a podcast, which was good. <laughs> it kind of coincided. And I think I think the guests that we've brought on have kind of been, yeah, has, has, we've done what we're kind of setting out to do, which is dig a bit into some of the science, give people who are interested in climate and a little bit knowledgeable or fairly knowledgeable in their area or just interested in the topic, a bit of a deep dive on some of the various issues. We had, um, in, in terms of scientists, we had Jan Minx, Gavin Schmidt, Wake Smith, so David King, and then Robert Lemper are all sort of quite technically focused. I think it's very valuable having people who've been really involved in coordinating that kind of deep review of the topic and getting to the consensus, but then, you know, giving their, giving their takes on it. So that, that was great. I think, I mean, Gavin Schmidt was just a, a great communicator and it was nice to have that. I mean, something I've been interested in that kind of like the twists and turns of the story around climate change, like how we've developed confidence, why we're so confident, where the uncertainties remain and how significant they are. He, he was great at, yeah, he's obviously had a lot of experience uh, battling on this and yeah, was able to give us a great take on it. And then um, a bunch of people on the policy side, uh, Roger Pilker controversial, but always has interesting takes. Um, Holly Buck, lots of details on the ending fossil fuels. Xeon Lights with a very interesting story coming from an activist side, well, coming from one form of activism and, and moving to another, a bit more controversial, the nuclear power. And then, yeah, having some, some of these broader thinkers who think about, who maybe tangentially touch on climate change. Um, Elizabeth Colbert, obviously giving her take on the, the long history of media's involvement in the issue uh, as well as her, her great books and uh, her kind of ambiguous feelings about interventions, the need for and concerns about them. And then, of course, um, yeah, our first episode with Neil Stevenson was great. Seeing someone who is very technically capable and scientifically informed, but not bound by that information uh, and seeing how he he worked that stuff into his um, into his fiction in a way that enriched it. Um, so no, it's, been, it's been great. It's been a great fun covered a lot of things. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it so far. So thinking about what our vision of this podcast was originally and what it evolved into, I did my best to phrase it when you and I were guests on the CSIS podcast hosted by Joe Micah, which may have at this point in time when when this episode airs, perhaps that one's aired. And if it has, well, link to the episode. And if not, we'll just link over to the podcast, which uh, in general focuses on climate change, energy, and security. I see our podcast as exploring the underexplored areas within the climate change domain. The central story of climate change is greenhouse gas emissions are too high. They're building up. They'll have impacts. How do we reduce them? And that's that's central and it should remain central, but that gets that gets lots of attention. So as I approach our guest list, I put that down a little bit secondary and think about what are these other issues? Like, how do we think about scenarios? Are we doing something at a broader scale in which we're reshaping our relationship to the natural world? Are we doing this unintentionally? Are we sliding into doing it intentionally? 
And of course, you and I work in, uh, have worked in the area and got to know each other in the area of sunlight reflection or solar geoengineering. And there's also these other real challenging questions about how do we attribute outcomes? We're having a terrible heat wave unfolding in South Asia as we speak. One might think it's related to climate change, but how can we know that? How can we know that for sure? So these are the sorts of things that I've tried to explore so far, and that I hope that we can continue to explore as we go into the future. Yeah, I think there's a whole set of, I mean, on the science side, there's a whole set of areas where relatively small number of experts can actually clue us in. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the questions, I haven't found someone for this yet, but um, forest fires is one that I keep, they keep looking like they're getting worse and worse and worse. And I, I guess they're very evocative. It looks very apocalyptic, but how apocalyptic is it? Like, how bad is it? What can be done to stop it, to limit it? Or, you know, will LA be burning down in 2050? I hope, I presume not. I hope not. But I think it'd be great. I kind of want to have speakers on like that who can, yeah, similar with biodiversity. I think there's a lot of us who know that there's these risks that are increasing, that are that are troubling. But I want to find experts who can speak on just how dangerous it is, just what we can do to limit it to get a better sense of the scale and threat from various things like sea level rise in cities. I, it's another area where I know there's a challenge, but what can you do? How, how will Miami have to be abandoned or not? I, I want to get into some of that. And as well, the, yeah, you're right. I think these, you know, where does it plug in? Where does climate change plug into the broader challenges, the culture, the impacts on young people? Um, there's a whole set of things there. And, I'm, and we've got a few guests coming up which we could discuss that will be quite fun. We've, we've booked them in or almost booked them in and we'll be re recording episodes shortly. So yeah, I, th I think one of those will be my colleague at UCL, Mark Maslin, who is a climate researcher, but he's also done a lot of great work on the origins of humanity, connections to climate, but also you know just how, how that came about. Also, he wrote a great book on the Anthropocene, defining it rigorously, like how can we how can geologists you know, put a marker on the ground or in time and definitively say the Anthropocene started here? Got a great book that gets into the debates there and puts forward his own um, specific date that he believes it is the right place to start the Anthropocene. So he'll be great to have on. Another one, maybe you can pronounce his name, uh, <laughs> Degemar de Groot. Degemar de Groot. He is, he is, in fact, of Dutch origin. I'm an American living in the Netherlands, and he is a uh, Netherlander, a Dutchman living in America. He's also a historian. We, 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 three out of our four guests we have booked right now are in some sense historians. That's, that's an interesting coincidence. I don't think we've really planned that. But he looks at the history of, of climate uh, and how societies coped with natural climate change in the past. He's got a, a, a book about uh, how the Netherlands adapted to an abnormally cold climate. I think it is the Little Ice Age, if I'm right. In the 13 to 1600s or so, if I'm right. So that includes the so-called, or at least the start of the Dutch Golden Era. And we also have coming up Nils Gilman, a historian of politics and technology and of expertise. Uh, he's been an academic. He's currently at a uh, think tank called the, the Berggrün Institute in California. And uh, uh, he's one of these eclectic, heterodox thinkers 
whose writings and statements I've always found to be pleasantly surprising. Yeah, I, I read his, um, av- I think it was The Rise of Avocado Politics or some other title like that with avocado in. And the idea being there would be a brown shirted response to climate change that would be cloaked in green. Yeah, which I think we're seeing signs of more and more these days. So, um, yeah, that was quite a shocking article when I read it and seemed very prescient. And I think we're beginning to see that coming to play. And um, yeah, another guest we've got coming up is um, Britt Ray, who um, has written a book, Generation Dread, which touches on an issue that I'm getting increasingly interested in and concerned about, which is the impact that worries about climate change or that climate change itself is having on the youth, on young people. There seems to be this explosion of anxiety and mental health issues and despair among the young. And um, yeah, Britt has written this book about how to cope with those anxieties. So it'll be interesting to, to chat to her about the, the scope of this challenge and, and how people can respond to it. So here we are, 10 episodes behind us. Perhaps we'll have a, a similar chat and review over uh, different topics, maybe another 10 episodes in. Pete, it's been a pleasure not only this conversation, but the 10 episodes prior to this. And I look forward to the next batch. Yeah. And thanks to all our guests. Um, it's been great having everyone on. And um, here's to the next 10. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. And consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challenging climate. Jillian Chong is our production assistant. And our music is by Peter Danilchuk.